Wilder has to find some bombs. He has to find some urgency. He has to do something, surely, to put Fury down here in this last round. Oh, great shot from Fury. Terrific right hand. Oh, and down he goes. Right hand, left hand. And I don't think he's going to get up. I think it's all over. I think it's over. Is he going to get up? Can he get up? Can he get up? He does. Oh, my goodness. Somehow Fury has managed to get up. The referee is having a very, very close look at him. Is he going to allow him to continue? In the last round, is Wilder going to turn this one around? He has another big left hook. And Fury needs to hold on and buy time. His corner are imploring him to hold on and buy seconds, which he does as the clock continues to tick down. Still more than half a round to go. Fury, how did he get up from that? I thought that was all over. Here comes Wilder again, trying to land massive headshots. Fury trying to keep away somehow. Wilder senses the end is near. He's looking for him. Another left hook, partially blocked. Tries to measure him. Oh. Fury crazily, his arms behind his back. Mounts oh. counters. Oh, what a left hand from Fury. Great my punch. Big, big. Great punch from Fury. And welcome to the Beautiful Boxing Podcast. There's only one thing to talk about now. Um, I feel if I gave you any other podcast, I'd have let you down. I'd have disappointed you. And, you know, I'll get the abuse, the brig best, the pelters. You know, I might get called a sausage, all these sorts of bad things. So I think it's only right that we talk about Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury 2, the sequel. Now, the first thing we need to say is it's so rare in boxing you get a rematch within a year and a half of the first fight. So... We have to applaud the sport, we have to applaud Fury, we have to applaud Wilder, and we have to applaud the teams that support them. Because this is what you want as a fighter. Now, I've got friends, everyone knows who they are because, you know, they, they do podcasts and videos that were upset that this has taken so long. But I'm actually really happy that it's taken this long because I feel an, re an immediate rematch wouldn't be the event that we see now. And what I really wanted for boxing in 2020 was a big event. I know people talk about Joshua Ruiz 2 in Saudi Arabia, but for me, that's not a big event because Saudi Arabia is not the home of boxing. What we have on Saturday night is Vegas. Two heavyweights. Two undefeated heavyweights. Rematching. So there's already a narrative built into this. Now add in the characters and the personalities. And for those who are deep into the science of Greek mythology, man, you're almost thinking Ares and you're thinking Aphrodite, the two Olympians who Ares is the god of war, Aphrodite, as you know, is the god of love. But actually, it's deeper than that. They're both warriors. They're both respected fighters. They just go about it in very different ways. Ares or Ares violence, destruction, brutality, 
fearful human being. Aphrodite, wisdom, guile, tactics, thought, patience. And you see a lot of those elements when you think about Wilder Fury too. You know, you've got two guys who, who look like polar opposites, but when you strip it all down, they're essentially cut from the same cloth. These guys are undefeated. Every big man that these guys have faced, they've never tasted defeat. The third point of the triangle has tasted defeat. So you have to respect what these guys have done, and they've been in some dangerous waters in their careers. So what excites me about this is there's this subplot that makes this far greater than the sum of its parts. This is as big as boxing is going to get for at least the next two or three years. This is a big event. It's a significant event. And it's one that fans should get behind wholeheartedly. So really, we're, we're looking at the second fight and we're, and we're saying, are there, anything, are there any things we need to be concerned about? You know, does Wilder need to worry about anything? Does Fury need to worry about anything? Today, they announced the judges and the referee for the fight. So we've got Kenny Bayless as referee who... As we all know, the, I mean, he's a big-time ref. Like, the occasion is not going to get to him. Supporting him, the judges, you've got... Ah, uh, nearly said Corey Feldman. It's not Corey Feldman. It's Glenn Feldman, Dave Moretti, and Steve Weisfeld, I think. Now, it, it's interesting. So you have to remember, Kenny Bayless has done fights for both Wilder and Fury. So I think he did... Fury Wilder or Fury Tom Schwartz and he definitely did Wilder Ortiz so Kenny Bayless is a guy that knows both men and from what we've seen he's a guy that's been fair to both men so that that's not a contentious appointment as a ref he is a big time player so fair play for that in your judges you've got Dave Moretti Glenn Feldman and Steve Weisfeld I call these the Canelo judges because in all big Canelo fights they're the three that sit at ringside now, if you say to me, why is that important? It's this. They're what I call consensus judges. And what, what I mean by that is they're broadly in line with where people see the fight going. It's rare that you call out Dave Moretti for a poor scorecard. It's rare you call out Weisfeld and Feldman for poor scorecards, which is good. And what's interesting is these guys tend to work together. You'll normally see at least two out of three of those guys at all the big championship fights. Well, the American ones. Hearn doesn't really. Hearn has his own panel. Um, I think Feldman might have done Joshua Ruiz too, actually. You know, any of the statisticians out there, Porky, if you're paying attention, tell me if I'm right or wrong. So what you've got is you've got a heavyweight referee and you've got heavyweight judges, and these are not contentious judges, so we don't feel like the fix is in. So that gives us comfort. So now it's really about the two men, right? This is all about the two men. And so now we go back and we go, okay, where are the clues? Where can we find the little tidbits that will inform what happens next? Because what we really want to know above all else is who's going to win. And I'll be brutally honest, I don't know. I'll always lean towards Wilder because Wilder has the equalizer. But I go back to the first fight. And sometimes you just got to shoot down some things. Now, number one, the people, the people who say the fight was scored 10-2 in favour of Fury, and there are many of them. I don't think it's fair, and I think you, a lot of people base that on what they've heard after the fight from guys like John Fury. But from a commentary perspective, 
if you look at the fight, you can give Wilder, I think you can, not even arguably, I think you can reasonably give Wilder four rounds. Round two, round four, and then round nine for a 10-8, and round 12 for a 10-8. Like, I don't think you can even argue against those. Those aren't rounds where, if you said Wilder had it, no one with two brain cells is going to argue. And if you said Fury had it, no one with two brain cells is going to argue. Then round number one, you could give to either or. So actually, an 8-4 could be a 7-5. So a draw is not that outlandish a point. But the reason why people don't see it that way is because John Rawling appeared to have a lot of bias in that fight where he was crediting Fury for punches that weren't even landing. And then he was crediting Fury for punches that were hitting arms and gloves, which you're not supposed to do because they're not the target area. And then when Wilder was landing, when he was landing with the jabs to the body, no mention of that. When he landed some of those hard right hands to the body, no mention of that. Some of the punches Wilder was landing on the inside, no mention of it. So in our heads, we build up this narrative that Fury's having it his own way. And when you saw Fury's face, the nose, the eye and whatnot, he wasn't having it his own way. He was getting... He wasn't getting beaten up, but he was taking some hard shots in there. And they're the sort of shots you need resilience to come from. So the myth that this was a one-sided beating and it was a procession for Fury who was robbed horribly is not true. It was a competitive fight. The knockdowns made the difference. Without the knockdowns, Fury is a clear winner. With those knockdowns, Wilder was able to swing the fight in his favour. And that's what we expected to happen. And so this is why I don't think it draws an absurd result. Now, I've heard people say so many things about what was happening in that first fight. Lots of breakdowns. But here's the truth. When Wilder went into that fight, my suspicion is that they, they watched the Steve Cunningham fight. And they said, actually, look, the early part of the Cunningham fight, he was competitive and he was able to land on Fury by being athletic, by having quick reflexes and having fast punches. They both had that similar sort of high guard, which I'm not particularly a fan of especially against someone like Fury who can go to the head or the body and what that did is almost gave Wilder a false sense of security and he forgot what he's really good at and it doesn't appear to me that in the first fight it doesn't look like Wilder fought scared in both Ortiz fights he fought scared and what I mean by that is he showed his opponent enough respect to be in and out of range you know and he tried to make his opponent come to him. But here it looked like it looked like two things happened with Wilder. One, the build-up had got to him emotionally. And he just wanted to bomb Fury out of there. Two, he had slightly underestimated how tough, how fit and how prepared Fury was. So he paid, and he paid a price for that. In that he let a few rounds go where he didn't need to. So when you watch the, the initial phase of the fight, you can see what Wilder's cagey and he's watching and he's what he's looking for is an opening. And what Fury refused to give him was an opening. You know, we, a lot's been made of the double feints and so forth. I was surprised Fury's corner didn't say, look, on the double feint, take two steps back. Negates the double feint. The double feint then becomes a, a precursor to an attack. So what you then do is you take two steps back, make Fury work his way back in again. If Wilder wasn't going to be the high work rate fighter in the first fight, he didn't need to be that close to Fury. He could have afforded to pull it back. You know, never feel pressure to make the fight. You're there to get the win, not to make the fight. If it's a stinker, it's a stinker, but sometimes you've just got to win. 
And one of the things I'm going to say now, and I'm going to be very careful how I say it, because I don't want people to go crazy at me. Whew. Wilder might have one of the best jabs of recent heavyweight history. It's, it doesn't look like much, but it seems to damage everyone that gets hit by it. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a line from Larry Holmes through the guys like Frank Bruno, Lennox Lewis. Look, Mike Tyson had a hell of a jab too, all the way to Vitaly and Vladimir Klitschko, right? All had good jabs. Joshua's jab's not shabby either. But Wilder's jab might be the fastest of all of those. And when he's on his game, is one of the more accurate ones. The tragedy in the first fight was he didn't throw it. And I think when you look forward to the second fight, it's what he does with that jab. Whether he uses it to protect distance, whether he uses it to cause havoc in the Fury defense, what he chooses to do with that jab will dictate the outcome of the fight. That's, when you strip it all down, that's your reality. Why do I say this? Because if he doubles it up, but doubles it up intelligently, so he forces Fury from Tyson Fury's right to his left, that's when the right hand opens up. Because when you study when Wilder does his best work, it's normally when he's moving laterally. Even if it's just one step to the side, he opens up a fresh angle, which he can then throw the right hand. At his worst, he walks forward in straight lines. And that's when you get the wild windmill attacks. When he moves laterally, that's when he throws the straight, precise punches. And that's when the best knockouts come. So I'm looking forward to seeing that in the fight. It's going to be interesting to see how then Fury counters that. Because I think in this fight, Fury has to be fundamentally different. I think David Hay said it best when he gave his assessment of how the second fight needs to go. Tyson Fury has to be a lot better than he was in that previous fight. He revealed a lot of what he'd been working on in that fight. And in doing so, he's almost given the blueprint in which to beat that version of Fury. I think the winning version of Fury is the version that gives Wilder the most trouble. And when you look at Wilder's record, the people who give Wilder the most trouble are active. Not only are they active, they come forward. And it's combinations. You're not going to one-punch him because what tires Wilder out is having to work in defense. It's not what he likes to do. He loves to stalk. His energy levels when he stalks are far greater than when he's on the back foot. So now Tyson's going to have to find a way to own the middle of the ring and maneuver Wilder around because that's how he wins. I don't think he's going to knock him out. But much like Tyson's Cunningham fight, I think he can grind Wilder down. Particularly if Wilder comes in in the 217 and below range. If he comes in under 220 pounds, I think it's easy for Tyson to bully him and just take that energy away from him. That's easier said than done if we're being brutally honest. So let's be very careful in how we describe these sorts of things. But I also want to see more accuracy from Tyson Fury. I didn't feel... For someone who's as skilled as he claims to be, there wasn't enough accuracy. I didn't see him setting up enough traps for Wilder. Wilder's vulnerable to the uppercut. But you can't just throw it because Wilder's also very good at letting his hands go. 
So you've got to set that up. Sometimes you've got to manoeuvre his arms in, in such a way that he's off balance and open for the uppercut. And that's what Tyson has to do. And, you know, we're going to talk about preparation and stuff afterwards, but I'm just talking about some of these finer tactical points for me. He's, he's got to bring the uppercut in more, and not necessarily just from the inside. That's not really what I'm talking about here. Sometimes you've got to be a bit Mexican and use the jab to blind and come straight back up with the left uppercut then finish on the right hand because you keep the guy tall and you scatter his defences so there's a home for the right hand. But then Wilder can do the same thing as well. I think both guys, as tall as they are, are vulnerable to that because it's rare that you're going to meet people of a similar height and a similar reach. So you can actually start to incorporate some of the things the smaller guys do, like the, the uppercuts, doubling up on the same hand. This is a chance for Wilder to be creative and it's a chance for Fury to be creative. Whether they choose to or not, completely up to them. But if I'm sat, if I'm sat in Wilder's corner, I don't want to see the power shots all the time. First thing I'm saying to him is, look, just give them 70%. Give them 70% of that power. Make it accurate. You know, soften them up a bit. Get them comfortable with that level of intensity. And then when you start to see the hands drop, when the pace starts to slow down a bit, boom, let it go. Boom, let it go again. Boom, let it go from a different angle. That's how you do it. It's that psychological pressure. And then if you're looking at Fury, you're just there saying, look, with someone like Wilder, double jab. If he doesn't move, which he doesn't often, you know, head control, right hand to the head, right hand to the body, score your points, bully him about. And you can, Fury can do that for 12 rounds. So I'm less concerned about that. I'm, I'm more intrigued as to how these guys execute. And it's not always that simple. There are adjustments you're going to have to make in this fight. The double feint thing ain't going to work, I don't think. I think Wilder will be wise to that. So I think Wilder now has to, you know, use, like I said earlier, use that double feint as a trigger to pull back. But I also think now Fury understands that when Wilder gets you in the corner, he's setting you up for an attack. So now Fury's going to have to say, I need to own the middle of the ring. Can Wilder launch one of his attacks in the middle of the ring? We, we haven't seen that for a long time, I don't think. Last time was probably Stavern. Uh, maybe Brazil as well. But we don't see him dominate the middle and then take you out that way. And I think we need to see a bit more of that in this fight. If, if for no other reason, the three judges we talked about just now, they love to see that control of the middle of the ring. That's what they seem to reward in fights. But the key thing for me with both fighters this time is, I call it scorecard control. Like when, I'm, when I'm talking to the young guys in the gym, I talk about controlling the scoreboard, right? If you can keep touching your opponent, it might be a jab, it might be a double jab, it might be a jab to the body. It might just be a, a little cuffing left hook, something. As long as you keep tapping your opponent and you make him think and you make him react, you're racking up points, you're racking up credit in that round. So you're making it more likely you're going to get the 10-9 round. You know, you let four rounds go in a row and you're now like, shit, I need to win the next four. It puts you under psychological pressure to perform at that point. And then if you can't win those, you're looking for a knockout. So it's important, like, just tactically, the thing I'm writing on a board in my gym is win one of the first three, win two of the first five, win three of the first seven, Deontay, and you have a chance in this fight. Bare minimum expectation is for Deontay to win three of the first seven rounds. 
he does that and he throws in some knockdowns down the stretch, he can win the fight. I think he's going to need a couple of knockdowns. And so tactically, that's where I think it's at. I think, you know, don't overcomplicate it. Keep it relatively simple. For Fury, using that heavy jab, not necessarily just the flicking jab, using the heavy jab to drive your opponent back. I'd like to see him come in a bit heavier, but a bit meatier than he did in the first fight. I thought he carried a lot of flab, which wasn't generating much energy. I'd also like to see Wilder come in around 226. I think that would be good for Wilder because he won't lose much speed and maybe he'll get that, that savage power back, which we love to see. You know, but it's not just the fight, though. That's what we're talking about now. But we, we've got to now look back. All right, let's look back and let's go, what's the preparation been like? Now, I haven't seen much into Wilder's camp. I know they've got Malik Scott there, which for me is always a badge of quality in a camp, like when you've got Malik Scott. And they've got the young kid, uh, Emmanuel Odisaye, a young German amateur. Seen bits of him on YouTube, but haven't seen much of him for me to talk to you about him. But what I do know is he's been doing work with Malik Scott. So when Malik Scott's teaching you how to be like Fury, you're probably going to learn how to be like Fury. And I think in the, in the same vein, Malik Scott is obviously replicating a lot of what Fury does. At 6'5", is he a good representation? Jesus, it's as good as it's going to get. So Wilder's got the perfect guy to mimic what happened before, but can Malik Scott create new problems and new situations? Can he get inside the mind of Fury and go, well, and we'll come on to this later, if Fury's going to go with Sugar Hill, what can Sugar Hill add? And then mimic that in sparring. So it'll be interesting to see if they've run through some multiple scenarios and game plans and how that's gone. But it looks like Wilder's had the right people in camp. I've been impressed with who Fury's got in camp. So I know for sure he's got big George Fox, who's coming in at 6'7 and 120 kilos. And what George gives you isn't necessarily concussive power. But what it is, is he gives you skill. He's versatile. He's adaptable. He can, he can mimic too. So he can do all of that. But it's more the, the height and the reach. He's a big man. Jesus is George big. You know, if you follow him on Instagram, you'll know he's a he's a big man, great guy. Like in person, I think he's fantastic. He's cool. And so having him there's good. You've got big Jordan Thompson, the cruiserweight from Manchester, who who's got hands as well. So he's coming in at what, six six? Six five, six six. So he's a big guy. He's got a bit of pop to his punches. He's no wilder, but you know, good enough. And I've seen David Adelaide there as well. So you've got him at 6'4", six, 6'5", six, of just savage aggression and punching power, you know. And it's good Tyson got him because I think he's probably asked Huey what David's like because Huey sparred him in camp for a while and the feedback was is that David really set about him and just David let him know that, listen, I'm strong too. And I think David's come on a fair bit since those days. So, you know, Fury's giving it to the youth, which I, I always like to see the the older veterans giving youth a chance. So this is good experience for everyone, you know, living out in Vegas, training out in Vegas and just learning. So from that perspective, camp wise, I understand why they've done what they've done. It's fantastic. And it's good that they're putting their hand in their pocket for these young guys. But one of the things I love in boxing is stability. When you stay with the same trainer, the same manager, the same promoter, whatever, you just seem to do better. So Tyson going from Ben Davison to 
to Sugar Hill, uh, obviously Manuel Stewart's nephew, raises some eyebrows. And I've got, to, I've got to work my way around this one without offending anyone. I think Ben's a good trainer, but I think we saw the best of Ben Davison in the first fight. And what I mean by that is Ben showed that he's a great analyst and he can break Wilder down. But once he had his game plan, that's what he was wedded to. And there wasn't an ability to effect change in the fight. So I think there's a period from about round five to round eight where Fury was in the ascendancy. And at that point, that's when you're saying, right, mate, you've got to stamp your authority on this. Maybe try for a knockdown. If he's there to be hit, then let's hit him properly. And I don't think there was that adjustment. That's no slight on Ben because it was still a hell of a game plan and a hell of a performance. And maybe what Tyson was looking for, and I understand this, because Shane McGuigan does it, he was looking for that wily old veteran to have in the corner as well. An extra pair of eyes, an extra brain, that extra experience that can get you over the line sometimes in tight fights. Clearly, Ben wasn't happy with that. So now they've gone with Sugar Hill. Now, I listen, I'm not buying into the Kronk bullshit. Pardon my, pardon my language, but the Kronk thing is dead. Emmanuel Stewart birthed it, deaded it, you know. All those guys that were in there like Bill Miller and so forth, respect to those guys for actually building the cronk into what it was. But this idea that somehow there's a sacred urn and if you've got it in your hands, you know everything about boxing is far from the truth. So when, I talk, when, I, when I'm looking at, you know, you've got Sugar Hill and Andy Lee in your corner, they're not there to make you better. They're there to take what's currently there and just cut it in a different way to how Ben Davison probably would have done it. That's it. They're just slicing it differently to present it differently. What does that look like? Is that going to be loads of one-twos, heavy punches, one-two, step back, right-hand, left hook? You know, kind of how Lennox fought in the tail end of his career. Or is it going to be more like Vladimir, where it's jab, jab, hold, jab, jab, hold? Don't really know. But look, what's Jonathan Banks done since Emmanuel Stewart? For me, not that much. Yeah, we haven't seen him take any new guys to new heights, right? So the Sugar Hill thing's a bit of a smokescreen and probably just designed to, to play on the mind of Wilder, who stuck with his guys, Jay Dears, Mark Breland. It's the same brains trust. And it's a good brains trust because if ever someone's going to understand Wilder's physique and style, it's going to be Mark Breland, who was a massive welterweight in this time. So that consistency is going to be important. Because it means that actually you're, you're just building on what happened in the first fight. Which Wilder has to do. He has to be better in the first fight. Fury in this situation has to get comfortable, get acclimatized and then believe that what these guys are feeding him is what's needed. So it's going to be intriguing to see how, how that part of it plays out. But there's also, there's also a third part and this is the important bit. How much have you recovered from that first fight? Um, shouts out to Matt Hamilton, who's involved with Isaac Chamberlain. We had a little conversation, and one of the things that we said, I think we both agree on this, is in boxing you build up an overdraft. You build up credit, reserves of whatever you want to call it, fortitude, character, spirit, will, grit, all rolled into one. It's this thing you have in you. And when you're winning fights easily, you're, you've got your four-rounders, your eight-rounders, you're not really drawing down on that. Maybe you don't draw down on it winning a world title, but there's going to be a fight. 
or there's going to be a camp where you have to draw down on it. Joshua had to draw down on it against Ruiz in the first fight and then probably had to draw down on those reserves in coming back from that. Fury definitely had to draw down on that when he got dropped in the ninth and when he got dropped in the 12th. Had to draw down on it again when? In the Wallen fight when he was cut. So over time, what you're starting to see is actually Fury's drawing down on these reserves and he's going to need all of his reserves against Wilder. So how much is left? I don't think he can do that same resurrecting act that he did before. Whereas Wilder, we've seen, right? Wilder, Wilder fought Fury to a draw, went on to beat Brazil, went on to beat Ortiz. What that says is, I'm going to knock him out. I'm going to knock him out. They're both top 10 heavyweights, beyond question. You know, I know people say, oh, what about guys like Dubois? Brazil's fought for a world title, right? So he has to be a top 10 because that's how you got benchmark. You've been at world level, which means you've been through that process. And in doing so, what Wilder's done is he's shown that he's still the same guy. He dispatched Ortiz quicker and better than the first fight. He dispatched Brazil far better than Joshua did. And that's a better version of Brazil. And in contrast, what's Tyson Fury done? He's fought Tom Schwartz and Otto Wallin. Two relatively safe fights against European guys that offer nothing unique. So we don't really know what's still in Tyson because he hasn't been tested since. He hasn't had to deal with that fear factor yet until this fight. And it's going to be interesting. I'd like to see Deontay go for that kind of heavy knockdown towards the middle of the fight and then maybe get one more. And let's really see who's got the reserves of character and courage because I just, I just don't, I don't think you're ever the same guy after getting put down like that. It's, it just, no, you're just not. Because it takes so, if you've ever been hit like that, it takes so much, A, to try and just stay standing. B, once you're down is to go, ah, I'm not... I'm not going to roll my eyes over and just chill. I'm going to get back up and just set about someone. It takes a lot of reserves. That's not done on stamina. It's not done on physical capabilities because in round 12, you're fucked. Pardon my language. Sorry about that. But I think that's ultimately the point is there are all of these elements that come together and only on Saturday will we find out who's really about it. But the beauty of it is whoever wins that fight's the number one heavyweight in the world. There's no debate. There's no discussion. Team Joshua need to sit down, watch this and go, guys, will you please fight Joshua next? Probably not because I think there'll be a trilogy fight depending on how this one goes. And then you go from there. But if you want to know what I think, I still think Wilder wins. I, I think if you put someone down before you can put him down again. Now, Fury tried to avoid that right hand for as long as he could. One of them's going to land. Just like Steve Cunningham landed his. I think if Wilder can vary the types of right hand that are coming through, woo, good luck to whoever has to face those. But look, guys, tune into the fight. Don't watch it the day after. Stay up, watch it. If you've got to stream it, stream it. Be part of the moment. Tweet, Insta, whatever it is. Be part of that moment because someone's going to ascend Mount Olympus on the, in the early hours of Sunday morning. And you want to make sure you're part of that conversation. So listen, take care. Have a great day, whatever you're doing. By the way, listen, if you're out there listening, you know what I mean? Anyone listening, you know, 
If anyone does anything interesting that I might be interested in, I don't even know what it is, man. Like, I never know what people do for a living. I never know what people do for fun. But I'm in that, that quest for something different. So anyone that does anything different, interesting, man, DM me on whatever platform. Because I might, you might just even be, look, you know, like I realised I'm one of the, I think I'm the, I'm, am I number one or number two? Sports podcast in Burkina Faso. And there's a range of countries where I'm number one or number two. It doesn't make any sense to me. But like if you're in a random location, man, I might just come down because I've got some annual leave. But just all those little, you know, got to make use of the community we're building here. So I can't just be here talking at you guys, man. You know, let's just get part of it because I'm flashing back to two years ago when we did Manchester for Groves Eubank. And, you know, it was fantastic, man. That was memorable. And the biggest tragedy is to see how many of us have drifted apart and fallen out with each other in the interim. But, man, that's boxing, isn't it? You kind of fall out, you all get back together, fall out again. So, listen, take care. Have a great day. And tune in, share. Make sure the world appreciates what we're doing here.